We are pleased and honored to welcome Dr. John Pauline as our speaker for this Sabbath day services of our virtual camp meeting. Dr. John Pauline received his bachelor's degree in theology from Atlantic Union College, which included a year abroad studying in West Germany. His MDiv degree in 1975 and his PhD in the New Testament in 1987 were both earned from Andrews University. Early in his career, Dr. Pauline was a church pastor in New York and Michigan before attending graduate school. After teaching at the Adventist Seminary at Andrews University for many years, he came to Loma Linda University in 2007 as Dean of the newly formed School of Religion. He is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Adventist Society for Religious Study, and the Chicago Society for Biblical Research. He has also served on numerous committees and study projects within the Adventist Church and professional organizations. Dr. Pauline is a well-respected Bible scholar and a prolific writer. He has written dozens of book reviews and has been published on topics relating to the history of the Adventist Church and Book of Revelation. He is a specialist in the Johannine literature in the New Testament, Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation and the intersection of faith with contemporary culture. Many of his books have been translated into different languages. Outside of academia, Dr. Pauline enjoys being with his wife Pamela and their three children. He also enjoys travel, golf, and photography. We are sure that God has many blessings in store for us as he uses Dr. Pauline in a special way to bring messages that will take us before his throne of grace. Welcome and happy Sabbath, British Columbia family and all other listeners from around the world. Wish I could be with you in person for this very special Sabbath morning occasion, but I'm glad that we can still do this uh, by other means. The title of this weekend is Led by the Spirit, and this particular message is Led by the Spirit through the Word. Now, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, uh, wrote the message that uh, is the inspiration for this title, where he says in Romans 8.14, All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So this title, Led by the Spirit, is letting us know that as children of God, we are to make ourselves available to the Spirit. And we'll be taking a look at that together this morning. The biblical role of the Spirit uh, is something that I decided to research a little bit for this message. And when Jesus was in the upper room, the the single most important text about the Spirit is in John chapters 14 through 16, where Jesus is giving his farewell message to his disciples. And in there, he tells us that the Holy Spirit has a role in comforting, advising us, teaching, convicting guiding, and revealing. And something I want you to notice there. It says nothing about dominating. It says nothing about ruling. It says nothing about forcing. The Holy Spirit is a persuasive influence. It's a gentle, guiding influence. This is corroborated elsewhere in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is described as witnessing to us testifying, there is giving us evidence 
uh, by which we can uh, understand the work of God in our lives. Inspiring us. Fellowshipping with us. That's a relational term. So the Holy Spirit is described as, as a member of the Godhead, but as one who is with us as a relational force rather than a ruling or dominating force. That will become important as we understand a little bit more later on. I want to show you a picture of my son. He's 34 years old and he works in IT at Loma Linda University. And here he's doing his favorite Jesus impersonation. But my son spends a lot of time online with friends from all over the world. And these friends include many nuns and atheists. By nuns, uh, I don't mean uh, somewhat of Catholic persuasion, but people rather who say, I don't believe in any religion. I believe in God, but I don't care about religion. I don't uh, belong to any church or, or other religion. And many of them are atheists. And uh, many of these are aggressively anti-Christian, aggressively anti-religion. And so my son gets into a lot of these conversations. And he came to me one day with a question. And he said in that question, how do we help people know that God is real? You know, those who are atheists certainly are, are people who say, well, God is not real. I don't see him. I don't hear him. I don't touch him, etc. My son says, how can you help people to know that God is real? Well, Jesus seems to have anticipated that question in the upper room with his disciples just before his crucifixion. In John 14, verse 19, he says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. You see, while Jesus was with them, his presence was the presence of God in their midst. They felt God's presence in talking to him, in hearing him, in being with him. But if he's going to go away, what is going to happen to their sense of God's presence. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you like orphans, but instead I will ask the Father, verse 16, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus promised that when he left, the disciples would be led by the Spirit. But the Spirit wouldn't be a physical person like Jesus was, wouldn't be outside of themselves, but the Spirit would be available within them to provide that sense of God's presence and the guidance and help and teaching that they would need. But the question comes, if the Spirit is everywhere, if the Spirit is with us, how do we hear the Spirit's voice? I can remember a colleague of mine who told me the story that one day a student came to him and handed in a student paper. And as he handed the paper to the teacher, he said, this paper was dictated by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> My colleague didn't know exactly what to do with that. Uh, how do you grade a paper that was written by the Holy Spirit? But he bucked up his courage and he took the paper and took a look at it 
and concluded that if the Holy Spirit had written that paper, it deserved a D, which is just one shade above failure. So clearly this student was under some mistake as to the origin of his own paper. So how will we hear the voice of the Spirit? Jesus also anticipated that question. And in verse 26 of John 14, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, the purpose of the Holy Spirit for Jesus' disciples was the Holy Spirit would remind them of what Jesus had said and done when he was with them. He would, uh, the, the very presence of God that they had experienced with Jesus, they could also have through the Holy Spirit who would remind them of Jesus, remind them of what he said, remind them of what he did. And many of those same disciples put that spirit to use in writing gospels that we have in our Bibles. And so the Holy Spirit from the beginning was closely related to God's Word. The Holy Spirit created God's Word through inspired writers. He created the Gospels through the disciples of Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit works with the Word. If you want to hear the Holy Spirit's voice, you will hear it in the Scriptures that He inspired. But there's a problem with that. Just like the student who did a paper on the Bible and felt that the Holy Spirit had dictated it, but it, it really wasn't all that accurate or helpful. The problem is the reality of self-deception. It seems that human beings are wired in such a way that we can deceive ourselves even when we're reading the Bible. Have you ever had the experience where you're reading a passage of the Bible and after 5 or 10 or 15 minutes it dawns on you I can't remember a thing that I read. You see that is not an unusual experience. I've had that too. And psychologists would say that this reality is related to something inside of us that the Bible talks about in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it what heart are they talking about Jeremiah's talking about your heart my heart my heart deceives me I can't trust my own heart you know often you'll see in movies trust your heart well the Bible's not so sure about that the heart is deceitful in fact it's so deceitful we don't even realize how deceitful it is. And my psychologist friends talk about this in the form of defense mechanisms. That the body has certain defense mechanisms in the mind that prevent us sometimes from really understanding what someone else is saying or really understanding what the Bible is saying. Let me illustrate this. Some of you may recognize this man. His name was Randy Johnson. And he uh, toiled as a pitcher in baseball not too far from where many of you live, in Seattle, Washington. 
He was a, a member of the Seattle Mariners, and he was six foot ten inches tall. He had unusually long arms, and he was capable of throwing a fastball at the speed of 101 miles an hour. But here's the fascinating thing. His arms being extra long and his body being extra long, when he let go of the ball, he was several feet closer to the batter than the mound, uh, than the very pitcher's uh, spot. And that means the ball got there even quicker than 101 miles an hour in the perception of the hitter. It was like 105, 106, 107 miles an hour. And on top of that, Randy Johnson would not wash his hair sometimes, and it would be long and stringy. And, and people often thought of him as just a little bit ugly. In other words, facing him as a batter was a terrifying process. Now suppose that Randy Johnson just entered the room where I am right now. And suppose he took offense at my reference to him being a little bit ugly. And supposing he decided to launch one of those 101 mile an hour fastballs right at my nose right now. What would I do? Would I say, huh, Randy Johnson has just launched a 101 mile an hour fastball at my nose. Evasive measures would be advisable. Do you think I would do that? I don't think so. I don't think I would think anything at all. At that moment, the only thing that would happen would be this. Did you see how fast I did that? Wouldn't have to think about it. Wouldn't have to plan it. It would be unconscious. It would be automatic. It's a defense mechanism. We are wired to defend ourselves from danger. And sometimes when danger comes, it surprises us. And we react without even thinking about it, without intending to, without being conscious of it. That's defense mechanisms. Psychologically, we have similar defense mechanisms toward people who tell us things we don't want to hear. Things that might feel threatening to our sense of well-being or threatening to ideas that we cherish and hold dear. And psychologists tell us that the only way to defeat defense mechanisms is to find a way around them, to meet people at a point of felt need. It happens when we're looking at the Bible. Uh, Jesus once said, how do you read? We all have the same Bible, but we don't read it the same way. One of the reasons is defense mechanisms. And how can we open our Bibles in such a way as to let the message of the Bible truly come through and not find in the Bible what we ourselves are looking for? Scholars call that biblical exegesis or as I've defined it, the art of learning how to read the Bible in such a way as to leave open the possibility that you might learn something. If we truly want to be led by the Spirit when we open the Bible, we need to be able to bypass some of the defense mechanisms and actually confront the text as it really is. Now, the easiest way to do that is by reading the Bible in the original. And here you see an example of the uh, Biblical Greek of the New Testament. Uh, but the, the, the challenge is, you see, that when we read the Bible in our native language, 
every word in the Bible is connected to something in our past. As little children, we first heard that word, and we developed an understanding of its meaning uh, through the context of our lives. So it's natural when you're reading the Bible in your native language to read into it experiences from your past, ideas from your own past. And I found that when I studied the Bible in the original languages, it tended to bypass my defense mechanisms. I began to see the text as it was when it was originally given, in its original context. But here's a problem. Does that mean understanding the Bible being led by the Spirit is only for experts? Only for Bible scholars? What about all those people who will never be able to learn such skills? I have good news for you. Holy Spirit-guided Bible study doesn't require Greek and Hebrew. But it is possible to understand the Word of God as it really is with five simple steps that I want to share with you at this time. To be truly led by the Spirit, there are five things you can do as you study uh, the Word of God that will help to open the Bible to you to learn things that the Holy Spirit wants to teach you. First of all, whenever you open the Word of God, pray for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the author of that book. The Holy Spirit understands the book. And therefore, when we study the Bible with the presence of the Holy Spirit, we can understand what the Holy Spirit intended. But how do we do that? I suggest something I call authentic prayer. And it goes something like this. Lord, I'm opening your word. I want to understand the truth of your word, no matter what the cost. You see, when you study the Word of God and you learn new things from the Word of God, it will cost you something. It could cost you your reputation, because not everyone will be happy with what you learn from the Bible. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your family. It could cost you your life. We've seen that throughout history. So, if you want the truth that much, the Holy Spirit will be with you. The Holy Spirit never forces, but if you desire the Holy Spirit that much, regardless of the cost, you will receive the Spirit and the truth will be ministered to you. We need to have a teachable spirit. If we go to the Bible only to confirm what we already believe, That is not a teachable spirit. It's recognizing that the Bible is there to teach us. And therefore, we need to come to the Bible with a little bit of a self-distrust. That we're not so confident in what we already believe that we're unwilling or unable to learn anything new from the Spirit and from the Word. So we begin our study with prayer for the Holy Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, says the following, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The truths of the Bible can only be grasped spiritually in uh, the awareness of the spirit, 
in the presence of the Spirit. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So without an openness, a willingness, the Holy Spirit never forces. But unless we're willing to be open to the Holy Spirit, unless we're willing to be taught, uh, we will not learn the deep things of the Scriptures. A second step in uh, bypassing some of those defense mechanisms is the use a variety of translations. You know, we're all familiar with certain comfortable translations, but the reality is no translation is perfect. Every translation has uh, an interpreter's bias of some kind or another. And if you don't read the Greek and the Hebrew, the original languages of the Bible, the safest place to be is use a variety of translations. For example, if you're using five different translations and you're reading a text and all five say essentially the same thing, what do you know? You know that that's a reasonably clear text. There aren't any deep issues in it. On the other hand, if all five translations of the Bible say something different, you're dealing with a difficult text, with what some might call a problem text. On the other hand, if you're reading these five translations and four of them are all in agreement and one of them is quite different, you've just discovered the bias of that translation. And over time, as you work with a variety of translations, you can more and more be grounded in the clearer positions of Scripture. And that's what exegesis is all about. Reading the Greek and Hebrew, you don't discover everything in the Bible is clear. But what the Greek and the Hebrew help you to understand is that some texts are clear and others are not so clear as we seek to understand them. And the third step in attempting to to learn from the Bible is to focus on the clear text of Scripture. The text where there aren't those particular challenges. The text where everybody who comes at the text is seeing essentially the same thing. You see, if you spend the majority of time in the clear text of the Bible, you'll be grounded in the Bible's central messages and teaching, that common core of understanding that will protect you from taking something you find in the Bible and and running off into a strange location. There are parts of the Bible that have never been truly, fully clarified. I think of the seals of Revelation, the trumpets of Revelation, particularly the trumpets. Daniel 11. These are some texts where if you have 12 scholars studying them in the original language, you come out with 13 opinions. And it's a lot easier to knock down someone else's opinion on these texts than to build one that everyone says, Ah, now it's clear. There are texts in the Bible that are not clear. And if you spend the majority of your time in the seals, the trumpets, and Daniel 11, you'll probably go a little bit crazy. I've sometimes said that if David Koresh had followed these five steps of biblical interpretation, he would be alive today. Because the solid, central, clear texts of the Bible safeguard us against taking some of the difficult texts and running away with them and ending up in strange destinations.
My own dissertation was written on the seven trumpets of Revelation. Some of you may say, oh, that's why you're a little different. Well, you could ask the question, doesn't this apply to you? You spent the majority of your time for several years studying the seven trumpets. Isn't it possible to get just a little off the track that way? Well, here's where God was very gracious to me. Because during those same three years that I was studying the trumpets, I was teaching the main central ideas of the New Testament. I was teaching classes like the Gospel of John, like New Testament salvation, like New Testament eschatology, like the letters to the Thessalonians. I was teaching classes that forced me to be immersed in the clear and central teachings of Scripture. And I think that would helped to safeguard that I wouldn't take my studies in the trumpets and make that the center. Something about Seventh-day Adventists, we love the difficult texts of the Bible, and it's okay to study them. I did. But I'd encourage you to spend the majority of your time in the clear text of Scripture. A fourth principle. Spend the majority of your time in broad reading of the text, rather than studying the text. And what do I mean by that? A lot of people study the Bible with a concordance, and concordances are very helpful tools, wonderful things. And these days, you can get them on a computer. They're even more helpful because the searches are so much easier. But here's the problem. When you pick and choose texts, when you are in control of the texts that seem important to you, it is like taking bits and pieces and making a salad and then saying, here's the teaching of the Bible. But the reality is, the danger is when you do that, that you're picking and choosing the evidence that fits with you. I think of the typical sermon of many pastors. It's late on Friday night, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And the pastor comes to the stunning realization, I've got to preach tomorrow. I'm in trouble. And so he puts his family to bed, goes into his study, and uh, after a while begins to form an outline. And around 1 o'clock, it starts shaping up into a pretty good sermon. But then he reaches for a concordance. Why? Because the pastor knows that if you're preaching a sermon and you don't have any Bible text, people aren't going to take it seriously. Because they don't think you know, it has the authority that the Bible has. The Bible has authority. So with a concordance, you find some texts that seem to fit the sermon that you put together. I have to admit, I've done that in the past. Many pastors have done that. It's easy to study the Bible with a concordance, but it isn't necessarily accurate. I remember Jehovah's Witnesses. They used to come to my door a lot when I lived in Brooklyn, their headquarters. And uh, they would come, and whatever subject we taught, they would have Bible texts for it. But they would read those texts differently than I did. And that confused me until I realized this theme. Broad reading is what matters. And I began to challenge Jehovah's Witnesses and say, okay, let's do an experiment. The next two weeks, let's read the New Testament from beginning to end. Take whatever translation you want. Just read the New Testament through. Put your literature aside 
Adventist literature, Jehovah's Witness literature, put that all aside. And for two weeks, just read the New Testament and ask yourself the question, is your organization teaching the central themes of the New Testament? Or is it off in left field somewhere? And the interesting thing is, I gave that challenge to 12 different Jehovah's Witnesses. Over time, seven of them became Seventh-day Adventists. But I took from that lesson that even as a Seventh-day Adventist, even though the Adventist message is so profoundly biblical, that I too need to read broadly in Scripture to constantly make myself more aware of what Scripture is teaching. I'm reminded of a teacher who used to have piles of note cards, and he would say things like, Here's 256 statements of what Ellen White says on that subject. Here's 452 statements of what Ellen White says on that subject. And he was seeking to understand Ellen White by all these bits and pieces. I never did that. Instead, I read Ellen White, read her book after book after book. I was a strange child, and I read some of her books several times. And Ellen White was a different person to me than it was to him. Because, you see, when you're reading the Bible, it is the author of the Bible who's in control. The larger context is in view whenever you're looking at a particular text. You get the big picture of the Bible, and it's the author that's in control. It's the biblical author to put chapter 1 in front of chapter 2, and chapter 2 in front of chapter 3. So when you're reading the Bible, the biblical author is in the control of what you discover. And so, the Bible is not to learn from us. We need to learn from the Bible. By lots of broad reading in the clear text of the Bible, you safeguard yourself against making your Bible study uh, take you in a strange direction. And finally, I find it helpful to study the Bible with peers, with other people who are studying the Bible just as carefully as I am, who are trained in the study of the Bible to compare notes with each other so that the things that I learn when I'm studying the Bible might be verified by others who are also studying the Bible independently. And I find it particularly helpful to listen to people who disagree with me because people who disagree with me will see things in the Bible that I won't see because my defense mechanisms will block me. I'll never forget my professor, uh, who was the outside examiner for my dissertation on the Seven Trumpets, was a Roman Catholic lady uh, who was considered by some the number one Revelation scholar in the world at the time when I did my dissertation. And I remember one time we were in a scholarly conference and uh, we had Greek texts in front of us and we were discussing the book of Revelation and she said, well, Revelation says this. And I said, no, it doesn't. And she said, yes, it does. And I said, no, it doesn't. She said, yes, it does. And I said, no, it doesn't. And then she said, read the text. And I looked at my Greek text. And I looked at it with new eyes. And I suddenly realized exactly what she was saying was right there in the text. She was from a Roman Catholic background. And that meant, naturally, I was a little bit uh, reluctant to take her seriously on the book of Revelation. But I learned that 
She saw things that my Seventh-day Adventist bias didn't let me see. And later on, we discovered that I saw some things that her Roman Catholic bias did not see. So sometimes when a people who really disagree with us, those are the very people that can teach us something we might not otherwise learn. So to be led by the Spirit through the Word means to spend time in prayer, inviting, uh, bringing our hearts to the place where we're willing to let the Spirit teach us, using a variety of translations, uh, focusing on the clear text more than the unclear text, broad reading more than using a concordance or other study tools, and accountability of others who have made the Bible their lifelong study as well. To be led by the Spirit through the Word is an exciting process. And it comes little by little. As Jesus said in John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So Jesus recognized that we can't handle everything now. But little by little, as we're open to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will guide us and teach us and bring us the place God wants us to be. The Holy Spirit's never coercive. It's never forcing us. As we are willing to learn, the Holy Spirit will use the Word to teach us. And in the end time, the Holy Spirit will continue that role. You see, the strategy of Satan in the end time is miracles. And through miracles, he will deceive people. He will accuse people. He will, he will play on their weaknesses. He will use intimidation and force. All of that is in Revelation 13. But the Holy Spirit works differently. The Holy Spirit uses the Word. The Holy Spirit speaks the truth. The Holy Spirit persuades and encourages. If you're conscious of your sins at a given moment, is that Satan trying to discourage you? Or is it the Holy Spirit trying to reach you? The difference is when the Holy Spirit makes you aware of your sins. The Holy Spirit always brings encouragement with us, always brings hope to the situation. The devil accuses to tear us down, discourage us, turn our eyes away from God. The Spirit guides by the Word. And I invite you to make the Word of God your study in openness to the Spirit like never before. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you for this lesson on the Spirit that you've helped me to learn as I studied your Word. I pray, Lord, that my heart and the hearts of all who listen will be open and willing to allow your spirit to lead in whatever way you would desire. I pray that you would be with us even though we can't be together now. I pray that you would help us to use other tools to maintain our relationships with each other, to continue our studies of the word together. And may we be led by the spirit as never before. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.